0: Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We will return to the study of Christ's parables. Um, as you are probably aware, there are eight parables here in this passage, in this chapter, Matthew chapter 13. In each parable, it unveils a profound truth concerning the mystery, concerning the mystery of the kingdom or mysteries of the kingdom Of heaven, as verse eleven indicates, Jesus answered them, "To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. These mysteries, these truths, they could not be known unless God, in His grace, would reveal to His disciples." And I, I truly hope that you have been blessed over the past few weeks as we took the time to study. Uh, these parables to understand them and and really to begin to appreciate more and more of God's wisdom and just His love, His care for His people. This morning we come to the final two parables, as Mike had announced. Um, and these final two parables, if you if you can imagine a table with eight parables together, first and eighth, they correlate to one another. Second and seventh, they also correlate to one another. So we will be looking at these final two that correlate to the first and second parable, and you will see how in just a few minutes. But coming to the end here, these parables are very crucial. Uh, there is sort of a, this, this sense of urgency t- behind them that, that it makes it essential for us to not only read, but for us to understand what they are saying. And even though these two parables, they are often not grouped together, like they have separate meaning. Nonetheless, they are related in that both parables they call us to action. In other words, they demand a response from both sinner and saint. They cause and compel the lost right? To seek someone, to seek after something. The lost, they must respond to the warning that is offered here in parable number seven. And the saved, they must respond by spreading and warning people about the impending judgment and to lead them to the Lord. So I want us to read, beginning with verse 47, parable of the dragnet, and then we will end with verse 42 or uh, 52 rather. Matthew 13, please look with me at your own text and follow along. Matthew writes, Jesus' words here, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So two very short parables, but we need to consider the implications, really understand what it is, understand the interpretation, the meaning, and how they apply to us here this morning. And as we do, here's the the main idea, here's the main thrust of what we are studying here this morning. God's judgment is delayed, but it is certain. God's judgment is delayed, but it is certain. Therefore, warn and point sinners to Christ who stands ready to forgive and justify. This is the essence of both of these parables, and I want us to look at them under these two simple headings. Number one, we'll be looking at the great separation And number two, the great obligation, the great separation encompasses this entire first parable or the seventh parable. There are similarities here, I'm sure that you've noticed as we were reading. The seventh parable is very similar to the second parable of wheat and weeds that Jesus here uh, addresses or, or tells the disciples, in fact, he tells the entire crowds, that's before they were in the house, verses 24 through 30, Tears among the wheat. There are overlapping elements. In fact, notice that this parable in verse 47, if you look at the text, it begins with the word again, again, indicating to us that Jesus intends to reiterate the truth already explained in one of the parables before. If you look with me at verses 44 through 46, the passage that we studied two weeks ago, the same kind of construction follows. In other words, in verse 44, he tells them that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, and he explains, or he gives them this parable, and then in verse 45, he says again, basically, let me tell you the same exact principle, the same exact mystery but through a different parable. He does the same thing here in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. So there are many similarities. We see like the wheat and the weeds. And then here we are told of the good fish and the bad fish. Right? There we have the reapers. Here we have the fishermen. But there are significant differences also in these two parables. Major differences. Differences that really illustrate the intent of this parable. The parable of the wheat and the weeds, found in verses 24 through 30, it focuses on the present condition of the world, the present condition of the kingdom, this coexistence between or, or with the good with the bad, the wheat and the weeds. The fact that believers today live in the midst of unbelievers. They coexist together, right? The workers in that parable, they're commanded not to uproot the weeds before the designated time. You will notice that in that same parable, Jesus spends some time in his explanation (laughs) highlighting the destiny of the righteous, the destiny of the good. So he's saying, don't be alarmed by the fact that both of, both the, the righteous and the unrighteous, they exist together because guess what? The righteous will be separated from the unrighteous and they will shine, verse 43 forth as the son in the kingdom of the father. So there's this, there's, there's this focus on the destiny of the righteous. But in his explanation of this parable of the dragnet, notice that only emphasis made is on the destiny of the wicked. After the separation takes place from the good fish, right, the bad from the good, then the entire explanation has to do with the destiny of the wicked. This then is the mystery of the secret of the kingdom. At this point, the king is here. During the time of this writing or or the the time that that these words describe the events, Christ is there and, and his kingdom is beginning to be unfolded as he prepares to open the door for sinners to come in, for sinners to be forgiven, for sinners to be declared righteous, for them to be welcomed into the family of God. And judgment, as was the Old Testament expectation, is delayed. But the point of this passage is, don't get it twisted. Although it is delayed, it is certain. It is coming. Although at this time, both groups, both the righteous and the wicked, they coexist, there will come a time when God will make the great separation. And this is what this parable is all about. Now, let's look at this closely. There are a couple of things we need to know in order to understand the background. Look what verse 47 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea. And almost all the commentators that you read, they refer to uh, three methods of fishing that that was used back in the day during first century. And in very much the same way, they're used today. They're practiced um, today. I'm not much of a fisherman Always had bad experiences, and by always, I mean one bad experience, and that was enough. I spent about four hours by uh, Hazel Dam right here, just up the road, one time when I was like early teens with my uncle, and that was the most terrible time that I could remember. And so never picked up, never tried fishing. I know some of you guys really enjoy fishing. Praise the Lord. Good for you guys. Um, So... Everything that I know about fishing, I just read up on. No personal experience at all. But there are three ways, three methods that they oftentimes used. One was what everybody most of the time uses is the fishing pole, right? You have the line and the hook, you drop it, and your goal is to catch one. Not many, just one. And if you can get one, that's great. The second method that was used was this net, And this net was obviously larger than than the fishing pole, but it was used by one person. In other words, uh, one guy would carry this net and he would drop in to the water if he sees school of fish, and the whole point was to grab as many as he can. In fact, this net here was used by Peter and Andrew when they were casting this kind of net in Matthew four, when Jesus comes up to them and he confronts them and says, Hey guys, drop your nets and come follow me. That was the net that he was referring to. Now, finally, you have this third method, which was this drag net that we have here in verse 47. And in fact, that's the only time this type of net, this Greek word for that net is used in the entire New Testament. And it refers not to this one man personal net that you can carry and you have the power to lift. It refers to this massive net. Let me read something for what what commentator said. He said, such a net could be quite long with corks floats along the top and lead weights along the bottom. It can be stretched between two boats or laid out from one and then pulled to the shore by ropes. Everything in its path would be caught as it was pulled in. So you would tie it on the shore, probably one end. The other end, you would pull by the boat and you would just circle around. And listen, everything in its side would be trapped in that net. Some of these nets, they covered as far as one or half a mile long. Everything, and I mean everything, would be trapped there. So how should then we interpret this Dragnet. And, and I think like the parables, previous parables, we, we must continue to root our interpretation in its historical setting by, by asking this question, how would the disciples have understood the meaning of the net? We were asking exactly the same question last time when we looked at the treasure. What did the treasure mean when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure or the pearl, fine pearl or pearl of great value. Same thing must be asked here. Obviously, many of Christ's disciples that are in the room right now, they are fishermen. In fact, this is probably the first parable that they actually relate to. It's like, all right, Jesus, now now you're telling us what, what we are very much aware of. So it was familiar to them. But also this metaphor for a net was often used in the Old Testament that perhaps they were very familiar to, metaphor for judgment. There were several passages in the Old Testament, but in Ezekiel chapter 32, look what God says to Ezekiel, son of men, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like the monster in the seas and you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples and they shall lift you up in my net. I will gather you and I will judge you. I will spread my net over you and it'll become very apparent what Jesus means by this net in just few verses in his uh, interpretation but notice also it is like a dragnet he says which is cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind this this word kind means species it's the uh, root word where we get our genealogy from it gathers fish of every kind. The net is full of, in other words, all kinds of peoples, all types of peoples. No one, the whole emphasis here, no one escapes the reach of this net. And if you apply this to our context here of judgment and interpretation, it means that everyone will stand before the Lord one day. Everyone will be asked to give an account There's no discrimination when it comes to God's judgment. MacArthur says in his commentary, the dragnet of God's judgment moves silently silently through the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shore of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. Nobody escapes this dragnet. And then in verse Forty, it says, and when they when it was filled, they they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. So they separated. Upon dragging the net to the shore, they began. The fishermen began this careful process of sorting through the fish. And, and in normal situation, there the good fish. That, was, that had value. Really what this, this good means, it, it's, it's uh, not useless, it's useful. It's useful for resale. They would gather the good fish into containers with water so that they could keep the fish alive until they would then take the fish to the marketplace where it could be sold because that's the only reason why you would do this type of fishing. If you're just trying to catch dinner, then you would probably use fishing pole. So, but the worthless, he says, the worthless, the useless fish, it would be thrown away, it would be discarded. Now think about this separation, again, in the context, in the Jewish context, right? This separation of good from the bad also assumes Old Testament background. Jews, they were very familiar with this concept of good and bad, clean and unclean, from the law of Moses. One commentator said, there are as many as 24 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. While any fisherman would sort his catch to exclude edible, inedible fish or undesirable creatures, Jewish law necessitated sorting for it allowed only fish with scales and fins to be eaten. For the Jew, they could only eat one type of fish. In other words, some fish was not kosher, You know, you go to the store right now, and you look at the packaging, and oftentimes in the back, it would just have kosher written. It's good for you to eat according to the law. Kosher means fit, literally means it, it fit, fits the standard. It fits the bill that God had prescribed in Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14, So as we continue to look at this text here in Christ's interpretation, I want you to keep this thought, keep this question in mind. What makes someone good? What makes something good? What makes something kosher or fit to pass God's judgment? In other words, this judgment is taking place and some are fit while others are not. Some are discarded and burned up later But some are put into containers and are preserved for something else. So with this background in mind, let's read verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. So it will be at the end of the age. Again, the parable describes an aspect of the kingdom that deals with the end of the age. Friends, today is not that time. This parable is not dealing with today. Not yet anyways. Contrary to Jewish expectation, judgment will come later. And Jesus wants them to know that what the Old Testament prophesied will come true, but not yet. In other words, think through this. The inauguration of the kingdom begins with a gracious invitation, not a grim separation. Jesus, when he showed up, he didn't start separating the right from the wrong, the good from the evil, righteous from the wicked. That was not the intent of his first coming. All the hearers of the gospel, they're invited to come to Christ. they invited to follow him. And friends, today is still that day. God has delayed his judgment, and that is good news for us. That is good news for you who continue in disbelief. Did God forget the Old Testament promises and the expectations? Absolutely not. Second Peter 3 9 says, the Lord is not slow about his promises. There were some people there who were walking around and was like, listen, we've read this and we heard it, and look, year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia, goes by, and where is your God? He ain't coming. And then Peter writes, in order to combat that thought, he says, the Lord is not slow. Don't get it wrong, the Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, why is he delaying? But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all come to repentance. Why is he delaying? He wishes for all to come to repentance. First Peter two four or first Timothy two four, Paul writes, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's heart, that is his desire for sinners. And some of you who are here this morning, you have been breathing God's air for years and maybe decades without giving him glory. Some of you have been experiencing God's rain and God's sunshine for years and decades without giving Him due worship. This is what is called common grace. God is gracious to all, to all. The people, God has been delaying his judgment, exercising great patience so that you would repent of your sins and so that you would follow Christ. And the delay is still in order today. He is still delaying for that purpose. Why do you refuse to answer this invitation? As I said at the beginning, there is an urgency here to respond. There is an urgency for sinners to respond to this invitation. And, and I do want to plead with you. I want you to think again and again. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus is your only hope, He is your only righteousness, He is your only salvation. Don't get comfortable. Don't mock God as if he's forgotten. Believers and unbelievers, they will not always coexist together. That is what this passage teaches us. Though the judgment is delayed, it is certain. This great separation that he's talking about in verse 48, it is coming. The grace period is drawing to an end. Judgment is, is coming so it will be verse 49 it will be not yet but it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous again if you look at verse 39 in Christ's interpretation of the parable of wheat and weeds he says that those reapers there in that parable they were angels And here he says, basically the fishermen that he describes here who are casting the net into the sea, who are drawing, who are separating, they are also angels. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Now who will give them the command to do so? And go back to verse 41 of this same chapter. The son of man will send forth his angels. God, Christ, is the judge. And he sends forth his angels to cast the net, to gather all the people before him when that time comes at the end of the age, and everyone will be judged. The king himself is the judge. Again, not all who coexist together right now will be ushered into the kingdom. Not all who claim to be religious will enter. No doubt you have seen the bumper sticker that said coexist. And that coexist depicts various religions, Christianity included in that picture. As if to say that, you know, we can just go on living life and we can hug one another and sing kumbaya for the rest of our days and beyond and just coexist in this eternal love for one another. We can all be friends, right? And even though this sticker coexist is a pretty good representation of what's going on today and God in his grace allowing us to remain together, This will not be so at the end of the age. Only one type of person survives. Not all who associated even with Jesus will be gathered into containers with the good fish, as Jesus even says in in Matthew chapter seven. And, And notice something here, it's very important. Although the net catches, it says every kind of fish on this great day of separation, the great of the day of judgment, all humanity will be separated only into two categories. All kinds of fish are brought in, but only two categories, the wicked and the righteous. Angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous everyone will be shown for who they are. It will be revealed, in other words, if they're kosher, it'll be revealed if they fit the bill, God's bill, not their own, God's bill or not. And it might be hard to know today whether you're in or you're out. That's why earlier on in another parable, he says, no, wait, wait till the end. I will take care of it. Jesus says, don't, don't pass judgment before the time. In the end, it's a, this is my job. Why? Because Jesus knows the hearts of men. And he knows who are his and who are not. And, and listen, just another observation as I was looking at this text, nothing in this text tells us about how some become righteous while others remain wicked. We're not told this process. In fact, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, it is still rather vague. Like vague, what is Jesus up to? What is he saying? What is he trying to accomplish? And if I was to challenge you this afternoon to sit through and to read Matthew, for instance, Matthew chapter 3 through 12, the repeating concept or the repeating thought that you will find in these chapters is this idea of coming to Jesus or following Jesus or spending time with Jesus, being in the same place with Jesus. That's the overarching idea that Matthew's so far been illustrating for us. We see Jesus coming to his disciples in, in Matthew and, and he says, you follow me. Just, just be with me. And then we see crowds coming to him all the time. They're bringing their sick to Jesus so that he would heal them because Jesus has something that they're lacking. And all throughout these chapters, in chapter 12, he comes and he looks at the crowds and he says, come to me. Come to me. And he says, I will, I will give you something. I will give you rest. But he doesn't define what that means. He doesn't get into all these particulars. All he wants them to do is to trust him and go after him wherever he goes. Faith. In fact, the whole entire point or the summary of the Sermon on the Mount is you don't have the righteousness that it takes to enter the kingdom where I'm going, but I do. And if you're in me, if you're found to be my follower and my disciple, then I can get you in, so you need me. That's it. But friends, we who have this, the entire gospel of Matthew and then some, we know more. We know why Jesus told them to follow him, right? He was going to earn that righteousness by his perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross. And because his heart is full of love and compassion towards sinners, Jesus is, is willing and, and he offers this righteousness to whoever comes and follows him freely, freely. Think about this. We're oftentimes suspicious of free gifts and for good reason, for good reason, A free gift often is something that is very cheap, and we end up throwing it away. A a free gift is often this free trial, right? How many of you guys have been duped by free trials? Sign up for this seven-day trial, and all it intends to do is to hook you into trying something and then paying for something that you don't want and you don't need, But it's free, sign up, take it. And so we're oftentimes so suspicious of free stuff. We would rather pay. We would rather earn. Why? Because me committing some value to it, it means I'm getting value in return. This is what, in one of my conversations with a a student there at uh, Sierra College when I was sharing the gospel with them and I told him, listen, Christ is offering you free free pass. He's offering you salvation for free, grace, and grace alone. You don't need to give him anything. And he says, this sounds so stupid. This sounds so ridiculous. We were standing by a three-story library building, and he said this. Listen, Tim, if you would have told me that, um, you know, climb up the stairs and go to the roof of that building and fall down, and you will get eternal life, I would rather do that than take your offer. I need to participate knowing that what I'm getting in return is valuable. Why? Because I committed something to it. Friends, when Jesus gives this invite, when he invites us into his kingdom as a free gift, it is none of these things. It is not a free trial. And it is not cheap. It is not cheap because we saw it two weeks ago when we were reading the Parables of treasure and pearl that he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. He surrendered everything. It cost him his very life for us to be invited, for us to receive this invitation into the kingdom. And it certainly is not worthless. A place in God's family is the most precious gift we can ever have a place in his kingdom. It is not a free trial. It is genuinely free forever. So therefore, the call is run to Christ because great separation awaits. Judgment is coming. And in verse 50, he says, hell is real. Hell is real. We often think of hell as a terrible place of torment and And rightly so, because that's exactly how scripture describes it. But we also need to remember that hell, friends, displays God's justice. And God's justice is good. We know that in the end, God will pay back to each one justly. That's what Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, final eternal death. The payment, wage, it's the payment, it's the check that you earn at work. You expect it. When you commit 40 hours to your boss, you expect to get a return in the form of a check. Well, sinners need to expect to get a return in the form of a check from God. And that check is death, eternal separation from God but think about this the fact that God is love it also means that God hates evil and he cannot sweep sin under the rug he can't because God's love and his justice they are never at at odds with one another when someone does something terrible to another God's perfect love and and justice they demand punishment they demand justice So upholding goodness and love by punishing crimes is a very good thing. We, in fact, long for justice to be served here on earth. For everyone who crosses the line of the law, we expect a righteous judge to punish that evildoer. But sometimes we we don't think of these things in reference to God. So for this reason, From God's point of view, hell is not just a terrible place, just as justice is not a terrible thing, but it is in fact a necessary thing. It is necessary because it upholds the very character of God. And so therefore, he says, the angels will come forth and they will come and they will Take the wicked from among the righteous, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. You know, some people today they love Jesus. They love their own idea, their own understanding of Jesus, and so oftentimes you would hear them say, you know what, Um, I prefer Jesus and his words rather than like, you know, words of the Apostle Paul or others like him, you know, who had some tough things to say that I don't agree with. Jesus never spoke about fill in the blank, so I'm with Christ, I'm with Jesus, I love him, but the rest of the stuff, forget it. But these people, they don't consider this fact that Jesus spoke more about eternal judgment and hell than anyone else in the Bible. Barnes, he writes this quote, our savior never fails to keep before our minds the great truth that there is to be a day of judgment and that there will be a separation of the good and the evil. He came to preach salvation and, is a, and it is a remarkable fact also that the most fearful accounts of hell and of the sufferings of the damned in Scripture come from his lips. Now the question that comes up, why would Jesus speak about hell so much more than any other person, more than any other author in Scripture? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, speak more about hell? And the simple answer is because he knows. He knows. He knows what awaits those who do not believe in him. He knows what awaits all those who do not possess his righteousness. At the end of the age At the end of this grace period, when Jesus returns as a judge, all who refuse his offer of salvation will be cast into the furnace of fire where, end of verse 50, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we can read about that account in Revelation 20 and 21. Weeping, weeping, wailing, this uncontrollable anguish. It will be a place of constant torment when the wicked will be forever separated from the presence of God. You know, sometimes you hear of people say, you know, I just went through hell right now. It was the worst time in my life. And we compare whatever, however bad, however miserable and terrible that experience was to hell. But friends, just consider this, that no matter how terrible and no matter how bad things are here on earth, there's still common grace. God is still gracious to you. God is still gracious to unbelievers. He is here still blessing you, giving you all things that you need. There it will be different. And since they did not want to honor him in this life and receive this offer of salvation, they will get what they wanted, eternal separation. Eternal separation. But consider this second description, gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. Did you know that every other time that this phrase, gnashing of teeth, is mentioned in the Bible, it describes this intense hatred and malice towards someone else? I was surprised to find out, looking at all the references, except for one in Mark chapter 9, all the other references in the Bible, both old and new, they describe something like this in Psalm 37, 12. King David wrote of the wicked. He says, wicked plot against the just and gnash at him with their teeth. Or of the godless mockers at feasts in Psalm 35, gnashed at me with their teeth. Lamentation speaks of how the enemies of Israel, quote, have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth, Lamentation two sixteen. In the book of Acts, after Stephen preached to the leaders in Acts chapter seven, just before they rose up to stone him to death, we're told that, quote, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him, end quote. Acts seven fifty four. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It seems that by this term, Jesus seems to indicate that those who refuse to submit to Jesus in this life will one day in judgment show their true attitude and character by gnashing at Christ, at Jesus. They're not weeping because they're repentant. They're not wailing here because they wanna get out. It was C.S. Lewis who says the lock, hell's lock, It's from the inside. They don't want to get out. They hate God. They will weep and gnash because they hate Jesus. Friends, what a terrifying display of human nature. And we see a lot of that today. So this parable is a warning. It's calling all sinners to respond properly. Do you belong to the king? Do you possess his righteousness? Because though judgment is delayed, it is certain. And since judgment is coming, then the second parable is this. You have a great obligation. You have a great obligation. Number two, the great obligation. Verse 51, have you understood these things? They said to him, yes. So some disagree that this is another parable in the list of parables, but it seems to be very similar to the other parables um, here in the terms uh, in term of contrast here. Um, in verse 51, Jesus asked them a question. Have you understood these things? What things? Well, the things that followed. And I don't think it only pertains to this last parable. It probably pertains to everything that he had said to them in private. Have you understood these things? In other words, do you understand what I'm saying, what I just told you? Can you connect the dots? God is giving them the understanding. To you it has been given to know, right? The knowledge, do you connect the dots? In verse 11 we read that Jesus said they were granted to know, they had the ears to hear. And the question is how much did they understand? Obviously, not all of it, not all of it, because the rest of the gospel record reveals that they still lacked understanding. They required additional revelation. They lacked faith. They continued to confront Christ as if he had no idea what he was doing. We read in Luke later on after Christ's resurrection in Luke twenty-four forty-five, that Jesus opened their minds to understand Scripture fully. It happened then fully. Yet, as James Boyce writes, he says, their yes here did not mean that they understood all that Jesus was teaching, only that they believed all that they did understand and were prepared to act on it. We see the, the disciples, they grow in understanding, they don't fully understand Christ's mission. Peter, just in short chapters, he will confront Jesus and he says, no, you are not going to die. What are you talking about? But as they spend more and more time with Christ, they will understand. And it seems here in, in verse 52 that Jesus assumes that they understood as much as they did. And he gives them a parable. Therefore, if this is so, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Scribe. Every scribe. Scribe usually referred to the expert interpreters and teachers of the Old Testament law and Jewish doctrine. Every scribe. They were very familiar with scribes and oftentimes when you come to a scribe in the gospel. It's usually a bad scribe, but here he is basically saying that just as Jewish people had their own scribes, the kingdom of heaven will have its scribes as well. There will be teachers, so specifically, the disciples to whom Jesus is speaking, this word here, this parable, they have a special role in the church in the formation of this kingdom here, ultimately the formation of the church. They are later on in Matthew 23, 34, they are referred to as scribes, the disciples. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will Kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So he's he's basically telling it to the crowds, I am sending you scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. He's talking about his disciples who will be sent. But one cannot become a disciple, or one cannot become a scribe rather of Jesus unless he first becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. Teachers must be taught. And that is what they are doing right now. These 12, really 11 who are walking with Jesus, they were with Christ, they were in his school of discipleship, learning about this king and learning about his kingdom. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple, so first a disciple and then a teacher, and they will become apostles in Acts. And he continues on, who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household, a householder. And it was the responsibility of the head of the household to give provisions or various portions to the family. They were considered to be stewards. They provided for the family and therefore they did it up to each member of the house or the entire family from their treasure. And Jesus here tells the 12 that they are now the stewards who were responsible for going and for spreading the mystery to the rest of the world. Their teaching, he says, will involve both things new and old, new and old. In other words, things previously revealed in the Old Testament through the prophets and those things which are being revealed to them right now through Christ. And if you, uh, could connect the dots to John, for instance, 14 and 16, Jesus says, you know, I will go from you, but I will send the Holy Spirit and he will continue to instruct. He will continue to teach you. He will take of what's mine and will give it to you. In other words, indicating that the spirit will continue to give them revelation of Christ, which is now written for us to study and to live by new revelation. Old, referring to the Old Testament. New, referring to everything that apostles had written, basically indicating that, you know, this old is fulfilled in the new. Everything that the prophets have prophesied about this Messiah who would come is actually all focused and centered on this one man, Jesus Christ, And therefore, they were warning people to flee the wrath of God and pointing them to Christ as their sole solution to judgment. And isn't that what we read in Acts chapter 2? When Peter takes all Old Testament passages and he unpacks it for them. And he says, that man is this man here. It's Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And and we church, we follow in their footsteps. We do the same. Has the king of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, captured your heart? Then be a faithful disciple by sharing Christ with others. Do you understand these things? Are you privileged to know? Are you blessed to be part of his kingdom by treasuring Christ? Well then, go and tell others. Go and explain. Become a disciple of Christ. Be trained. Be a serious learner of Christ, his gospel, his heart, and then go out to faithfully warn and point people to him. That's the call. This specific parable specifically applies to the twelve. He tells them later, go out into all the world, right? And proclaim, baptize and teach. Acts 1.8 says, go out into the remotest parts of the earth. Why? Because only one name given. Only one name given. And the name that you preach in Jerusalem is the same name that you preach in Africa because they don't have another God. And even if they do, that's a false God only one name. Go out and proclaim. Make the connection. Make the connection from the Old Testament to the New. Focus on what that points to, Jesus Christ. God's judgment is delayed, but it is certain, friends. Therefore, warn and point sinners to Christ who stands ready. He stands ready. Today is not this day. Today is not the end of the age. We are Rapidly getting close. But today is not that day. He stands ready to forgive and to justify. Beloved, once again, our only hope, our only hope for us sinners is is Christ. Our only hope is to come to our senses, to respond to the gospel, to forsake our old way so that Christ would make us new. That's it. Only Christ is able to transform sinners from being bad fish to good fish. We know that because we have the rest of the Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. That's it. You have to be in Christ. And if you're here today and if you're not saved, friend, God is still gracious to you. He is calling you to ex- escape the torment of hell. How? by turning to him in repentance and faith. Are you a sinner who needs God's forgiveness? Well, it is still offered today. Today's a good day. God is gracious. And for the rest of us who understand the gospel and who are secure in our hope, who love Jesus and who worship him for what he had done and continues to do, will we be like Christ? Who knows what's ahead who knows what's ahead and he is not afraid to tell us. He knows the destiny of every sinner and therefore he warns and therefore he pleads with people to be reconciled to God. That's what Paul said earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore knowing the terror, knowing the fear, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Friends, connect the dots. Point sinners to their Savior as Peter did in Acts chapter 2. And I pray that as we wrap up this study of Matthew 13 that God may just give us grace to be concerned, to praise him because we have been granted this knowledge and to be concerned for the lost and to show them the way to Christ because everything in this scripture points to him. Father, we praise you. Our hearts overflow with gratitude. Only you could come up with such a plan. And this plan never fails. And we thank you that you are gracious, that you included us in your plan. And we trust that there are many more. There are many more precious people that you desire to save and so I pray that you would just compel us to go to point people to the only one who, can, who is the remedy for their every issue, the ultimate of which is their destiny, their soul. I pray, Father, compel us. Help us not to be afraid to speak like Jesus, but may we speak with Christ's heart and his attitude. We thank you, we pray that you would save many from our families, from this neighborhood, that Christ would be exalted in rescuing many many sinners. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.